Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Robin Ferraconi, the founder and CEO of Ferrant Advisors, an executive compensation, performance, and corporate governance advisory firm. Robin has over 30 years of consulting experience, and she's the author of the book, Fair Pay, Fair Play, Aligning Executive Performance and Pay. In this podcast, we talk about her career, the shift towards stakeholder governance, executive compensation trends, moonshot equity grants and founder top-up grants, SPACs, the ExxonMobil proxy fight and what it means for directors, and the new disclosure and regulatory trends involving human capital. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Robin, it is excellent to have you in this podcast. I always interview people who are experts in their domain, and you've obviously been in corporate governance for a very long time, and it's great to have you in the Boardroom Governance Podcast. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Evan. All right. So as usual, I start with the origin story of my guests. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, uh, for instance, uh, where you grew up, and then we'll move from there into different roles that you've had all the way up to Ferrient Advisors. Certainly. So I um, grew up in Elkhart, Indiana, actually, in the middle of the country. And um, it, was a, it was a nice but uneventful childhood. And by the time I graduated from high school, I decided um, I needed warmer weather. So that's partially how I picked Duke University. <laughs> <laughs> Good school and warm weather. Okay. And, and and then what? And after school, what you you, you did your MBA or you worked for for a little bit? Yeah, so I was going to um, originally. Uh, I like science, and I was going to originally major in in biology or some one of the sciences. And then I decided, you know, there wasn't enough practical application to it, and and not an, enough uh, kind of immediate feedback. So I decided business would be good. It was quantitative, uh, with a, with a, with a lot of exciting things going on. So I majored in uh, economics and management science. Then decided to get an MBA, and I got deferred from Harvard and mm-hmm. decided to work in uh, marketing at Samsonite for three years. So I took a three-year deferral instead of two, went to Harvard Business School, and then I learned about consulting. And I mm-hmm. didn't know about consulting before then, and I decided, you know what, I'll give that a try. I did my summer internship with Booz Allen, and uh, mm-hmm. next thing you know, I was uh, hired by Booz Allen and um, have been a consultant ever since. And where were you uh, first in Booz Allen? What what office? So I started my summer internship in New York and then decided, gee, I've been to San Francisco once or twice, really liked it. I'll see if I can uh, be in their San Francisco office. And that worked out. So I <laughs> uh, was in San Francisco for five years. And then I got the um, the, the tap on the shoulder uh, by one of the Booz Allen partners to, to come with him and start uh, to start our own firm. And that was SCA Consulting. Uh, and that was really interesting because um, rather than creating strategy, which is a lot of what we did at Booz Allen, um, it was really about implementing strategy. Because unless you get into the hearts and minds of people, uh, which you can do through compensation, um, then the, there's chances are the strategy might sit on the shelf. And I thought, you know, this is a really great way to not only take a good strategy, but make it come alive and do it through executive compensation. And so we started SCA Consulting. 
came to Los Angeles to do it, which is why I ended up in, in LA and um, uh, built, a, built a, a really great firm that we then ended up selling to Mercer in 2001. And uh, then I worked for Mercer uh, for six years. It was owned by Marsha McLennan, uh, did some time at, uh, work at the, at the parent company level, uh, helping to knit together the various businesses that Marsha McLennan had and that, and that within Mercer, Mercer had. You know, you'd knit together strategy and organization and compensation and, you know, have the full, uh, the full value chain there. Uh, and then in 2007, with uh, independence being a very big issue coming down the track, decided to go out on my own and start Farian Advisors. So that's hmm. the that was the trail, one thing leading to the next. So let me start all the way back to Booz Allen. So were you involved in the tech industry, I suppose, back in San Francisco in the early 80s? And uh, I suppose those were the days as well, where there was a first uh, foray of, of tech companies like Apple and others. And maybe that, that was an interesting time to be in San Francisco. It was very interesting. A lot of, um, you know, it's a hotbed of entrepreneurial activity as it still is today. But one of the interesting things is I got to work at all, in all kinds of industries. So one of my very first assignments was a strategy assignment for Olympia Brewing Company. So that was beer. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we did assignments for a paper distribution company. We did assignments for Atari. Um, we did a, we did assignments for a lot of different businesses, and that was great because it allowed me to really see the landscape of businesses out there. Interesting. And when you were at SCA Consulting, uh, was it mostly executive compensation, or also you were dabbling into boards and other issues that were corporate governance related? So uh, that was interesting. It was very different when SCA started because uh, compensation consulting was actually commissioned by management. Mm-hmm. It was very rarely commissioned by the boards. And so it was a whole different era. Uh, the boards were not near as active or proactive as they are today. And so we would work for management. Um, the, the thing we brought to the table, though, was a strategic lens on things. And I think that was an important differentiator because we were able to say, how do we explicitly link the compensation programs to the strategy, not just do what's competitive, but make sure we're really linking it to the company's strategy to do what they need to get done. And uh, it was it was that link that I think really created a difference um, in an environment that was still very much driven by management. Well, that's really interesting because obviously now, as you said, uh, a lot of the compensation is driven by boards. Let's go back a little bit in history. And, and if you recall, what made the switch from uh, a compensation driven by the CEO or management versus the board? Was this through Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002? Or was it other issues and, and you know, even Dodd-Frank 2010? But what, what changed and, and from your perspective as a, as a consultant in, in executive compensation, what are the major issues that you saw over time where board took over with more independence and trying to do these, uh, these, these new plans? Yeah, so I, I think that is a very interesting question. And a lot of it has to do with the economic environment uh, that, that we see. And in the 1980s and uh, 1990s, we saw a tremendous amount of wealth being created uh, by companies. Uh, there was a lot of capital being provided to companies. We had come out of the kind of the stagnation of the 1970s. And um, you know, executives were getting very wealthy and shareholders were getting wealthy through that process. And I think in the 1990s, which was, you know, all things looked up and to the right, um, 
boards were starting to say, getting pressure and starting to say, you know, it's it's it just cannot be uh, an an unfettered situation with executive comp. One has to pay attention to it. And then we also see, you know, saw the popular press come out with a lot of criticism around executive comp and sensational news articles about who makes the most and those mm-hmm. kind of things. So I think this was starting to get a real um, kind of kind of a real real legs among board members to say, you know, let us start uh, being more careful with this. And then of course you had the the dot-com bomb of early 2000s. And uh, that meant that shareholder, nothing, you know, things weren't as rosy as they once were for shareholders. And so um, really scrutinizing executive compensation to make, si- make sure it wasn't one-sided from a governance perspective also became important. Um, you mentioned our Sarbanes-Oxley. That was, I think, a critical turning point because there it really strengthened the, the audit function. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Boards wanted to make sure, as well as uh, as well as um, the public and the regulators, that uh, executives weren't uh, earning ill-gotten gains. That, that that the gains were real for both shareholders and them. They weren't just earning money, and then there would be restatements and things of that nature. So that was an important turning point. And then, of course, um, the financial recession of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, really smoked the foxes out of the foxholes, and uh, you know. Executive compensation was blamed for part of uh, the frenzy that had happened around writing loans that didn't really have um, good basis for, for for the credit risks that they were taking. And, um, uh, you know, we, we saw Dodd-Frank be the result of that, um, the Dodd-Frank Consumer Act um, in 2010 be signed into law. And that was a, a, a very big watershed moment in executive comp. So I think all of these things um, led to boards becoming much more active, much more proactive, uh, much more independent. And now you see that uh, it, a, a very changed landscape from what it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so you, uh, when you started your new firm, Ferent Advisors, I see it was 2007, so maybe just before the crisis. But uh, tell us more about the firm and 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 what do you do and and how do you uh, you know practice in the area of of governance and in executive compensation. So um, Ferient was started in 2007. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you makes you stronger. So I ended up um, going into 2008 and 2009 without a lot of business, but a great basis for building the business. And I thought a lot about about what we wanted to do. And not only did we want to be a premier firm that very explicitly linked executive compensation to strategy, which is what SCA had done, but also really pay attention to good governance, doing it in the right way. And, uh, and, and it was on that basis that Ferient really uh, got going. And it, was, uh, it, it really serves kind of three parts of the marketplace, um, ex- consulting on executive compensation, but doing it within the context of performance and strategy and then um, making sure that it's within the standards of good governance. And so it's all three of those things that come together uh, to create Ferient. Um, and so it, it's it's kind of 2.0 or 3.0 from where SCA was and where we were at Mercer. And I think um, it's, it, it's very geared to the times today because um, all of those things matter. Mm-hmm. You recently, your firm published a, a report on... Uh, stakeholders and and global trends and stakeholder incentives. And uh, one thing that caught my eye is that uh, you went beyond what people normally refer as ESG, right? Environmental, social, and governance. 
because you added some metrics in there, like customers and community metrics. Why did you do this, and what made you? Uh, what prompted this distinction in these uh, nomenclatures? Yeah. So, um, thank you for asking about that. It was a big research effort that uh, that we're proud of. But we went. Let me just step back for a moment. Um, the the way we were able to do this um, was uh, with our global partners, and so we created what's called the Global Governance and Executive Compensation Group um, in 2013. Um, this is a group of six companies from around the world, premier independent executive compensation firms um, in North America, which is us. And then we have um, firms in the UK, continental Europe, South Africa, uh, Asia, and Australia. And so that allows us to, to cover uh, all kinds of topics globally. And the partners in that organization, and we thought it would be a really good idea to look at uh, global uh, ESG matters, uh, environmental, social, and governance matters, but also uh, because it was so important to broaden the um, the lens on stakeholders to make sure that we were picking up um, customers, which is also a very important stakeholder for organizations, as well as the communities in which um, in which these companies operate. And it was us coupled with the GECN that I think really brought this alive, because one of the things we found, Evan, was that the U.S. actually lags all mm-hmm. other regions in yeah. terms of their use of uh, stakeholder measures in executive compensation systems. Um, so we have a 71% incidence rate of uh, companies using uh, stakeholder, uh, sorry, using stakeholder measures in incentives in Australia, for example, and the U.S. is at 56%. So you can start to see the differentials, and uh, that says to me we have a lot to learn from. Uh, you know, our uh, other venues around the world. Yeah. So, so that's a, a really interesting topic because there has been, and I should say a lot of rhetoric around this idea of stakeholders. And, and we, we may talk a little bit more about the business roundtable statement in 2019 that has sort of shifted the discussion around the purpose of the corporation, whether it's to only maximize uh, shareholder value, but now it's not only about that, it's about all the other stakeholders, which includes the customers, employees, and the environment and so forth. But one area that I think is interesting in your report is, okay, how do you actually create incentives that are linked to stakeholders in compensation, which is something that really matters, like put you know, your money where uh, your mouth where your money is, right? And, and so I think that's really interesting. So maybe you can guide us a little bit on how do you think when you put together these compensation plans about stakeholder goals and how do you implement that? And particularly the distinction between in regions like Australia, where it is more common to the US where you practice and maybe have you had more pushback on companies and what's the approach that you know, you've had from boards and, and, and management teams? Yes, uh, that, so we are on a journey and I, I feel as though this is a really important um, Thing to keep in mind because uh, I would say a few years ago, you know, we we hadn't heard much about stakeholders. Now, the stakeholder concept isn't new; it has mm-hmm. it has come and gone um, over the years. And in fact, um, back in the 1980s, there was an essay written by uh, somebody who had been on a board with me uh, who won an NCR Foundation grant by writing the stakeholder versus shareholder hmm. essay mm-hmm. and arguing that stakeholders were important. 
And I thought that was really interesting. If you go back 50 years, you can find it. You probably find it going back farther than that. Well, 100 yeah. years, we can go back to the Berlin means and, and the, the Dodd debates of the 1930s, right? There, there you go. Exactly. So this is a, a an argument that comes and goes. However, I do think it's a little bit different right now because um, we are in an absolute hotbed climate-wise, and uh, we realize that our planet is changing very significantly and corporations and people don't catch up with what changes are needed in terms of how we how we behave how we work um, how we pollute or don't pollute the environment we're going to find ourselves in uh, bigger trouble than we already are and I think there's a seriousness to it now that uh, that that there wasn't before that will stick the other thing is uh, we keep repeating the same mistakes of the past you know you think about um, you know, civil rights movement of the um, 1960s and, you know, how much we've been working on diversity and equality and, and things of this nature. And we realize today that we still don't have it. And un unfortunately, the George Floyd incident and murder put that, uh, in, it, it put a very big spotlight on that. And people are realizing, gee, we really need to wake up and do something more about this. We can't just keep talking about it. We can't just have good intentions. We actually have to take action in a very, very different and deliberate way. So things I think are a little bit different now where this is here to stay with us. Uh, and I think that's a, that, that is a big deal. In addition, uh, you know, the U.S., as I mentioned before, is behind on these things. I would say we have a couple of reasons for this. One is the, lead, the leadership of the country wasn't necessarily um, on board with it. We, we backed out of the Paris Climate Accord, and now we're starting to get back into these things. But that was, was an issue. And also, we have a very diverse economy. Um, you look at Australia, who's a front runner here. Their economy is dominated by um, materials and financial services. Well, materials is a, it, you know, you, if you extract, if you mine, you have a lot of uh, potential pollution and environmental issues. And so um, they had to care about that. Financial services is very much a people business, had to care about the people and social side of things. So I think um, partly this is driven by the type of, of industries that, that dominate these various venues. So we can learn from these organizations and to get back to your, or these venues, and to get back to your question about then, how do you think about putting these into incentive plans? Um, one has to do that with a lot of thought, uh, because it's not a foregone conclusion um, in the in the United States, in particular, that um, all companies should have uh, stakeholder measures in their incentive plans. One has to take, a, I think, a pretty considered look at whether those kind of measures belong in the incentive plans. Um, there's a there's a lot of acceptance that companies need strategies around stakeholders. They need uh, reporting and measurements around stakeholders. But um, we see some proponents saying, yes, they have to be in the incentive plans as well. We see others saying, no, they're in these other things. Uh, the incentives, it, we actually might lose something if we put, um, in, if we put stakeholder interests into incentives because we might narrow our focus when we don't really want to narrow the focus. We need to keep a broad focus. So we bring that up in our report, and I think it's important. Um, however, if a company decides, look, we really need to focus on this because we're not getting as far and as fast as we want to as we want to go, then we better um, we better bring this to everyone's attention through focusing devices. 
And um, I think there's kind of a let's walk before we run kind of um, orientation right now. Um, the first step is just to create a baseline and say, where are we in terms of our goals and our strategy with respect to environmental, social, and, and all of the other um, pieces that go into stakeholder interests? Um, once we get that baseline, it's then important to say, where do we want to go? What are our goals? And how do we measure it? And then once we, we do that, we need to say, okay, how will these be recognized in incentives um, if, if that's the way the company wants to go? And what's interesting is you see some companies who want to very much make it a measure that has a weighting on it. We're going to put 10% or 20% of our incentive on whether we achieve this goal or not. And we see others saying, no, we need to be much more um, qualitative about it because, again, trying to be too narrow is actually going to hurt us. It's going to it's going to make us look like we have quotas when we're really trying to make holistic, systematic, cultural changes around the things that need to be accomplished, which is much larger than a particular goal. So what we see, Evan, are different philosophies emerging. Mm-hmm. And the incentive system um, kind of has to has to go with this. So we have a, a database on DEI, for example, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. looking at that part of social goals that says, here's what all of the S&P 500 companies are doing. 33% of them either have specific goals or mention it as a factor that they consider when awarding incentives. And um, we can see what, what they do. And some have very specific measures, for example, on representation. X percent of our board will be female or people of color by X date. And that's a very definitive goal. Uh, we see others sta- saying we will take um, whether whether people um, you know, paid attention and made progress on our diversity goals, we'll take that into account in awarding the individual portion of the incentive award. And we had one client that did something very interesting. They have an individual modifier on their bonus plan, Mm -hmm. and they can uh, modify the award upward by 10% or downward by 25%, which is a pretty big downward adjustment. Uh, And they decided to put uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, measures in there, but not so much as a quantitative measure, but as a qualitative measure. So if someone's not behaving in the right way, they can make all of their business unit goals, but if they're not behaving in the right way, they can get, actually get a 25% penalty wow. by that process. And is that uh, determined by, by the board, by the, by the yeah, uh, compensation so uh, committee of the board? The board, A, decides that that's the right construct to put in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, management recommended it, and, and we as their consultant uh, endorsed it. Uh, but in addition, the board the board endorses it, and then at the end of the year, uh, the recommendations are made as to what kind of individual factor somebody's earned, and the board needs to approve that, at mm-hmm. least for the top executives. And that's really interesting because at least we are seeing some companies uh, really putting some uh, measurements out there and incentives. You know, one of the things that I think has changed a lot in governance is obviously in the last, let's say, 20, 30 years, the rise of institutional investors has really 
pushed the voice of institutional investors in the boardroom, and they are putting an agenda that is very driven by ESG, very driven by social issues and diversity, and the Black Rocks and the Fidelities and the Vanguards and the State Streets have been very vocal, right? So maybe that's one thing where we see why things have been changing in corporate America, whereas before the power structure wasn't so investor heavy, uh, although I should say that here in Silicon Valley, it's still very founder heavy. And I want to ask you a question about that. You know, one of the trends that we are seeing in Silicon Valley is uh, boards awarding uh, founder grants to CEOs and founders that are enormous, right? We can think of Elon, or but we there's also cases with Palantir, with Snowflake, Coinbase that are in the billions of dollars in compensation. How do you approach this? And and as an expert in executive compensation, how do you think about these plans? So we actually have a name for them, Evan. Mm -hmm. We call them moonshot equity grants okay. <laughs> because they are they are big equity grants that are shooting for the moon. Mm -hmm. And um, you know we we've seen more and more of these, and and unfortunately, what happens is once we see one person getting it, then the next one wants it. You know, and so that's. Uh, part of the issue. And a lot of people are asking for this on an, on the eve of the transaction. You know, they've gone through, uh, a lot of founders have gone through succession rounds of financing. They uh, have taken on money, their own interests have gotten diluted. And now before, let's say an IPO or a big transaction, they want to be plussed up mm -hmm. um, so that they have skin in the game. It's their last opportunity to do this before they come under public scrutiny if they're going public. So, so we see a lot of that. And um, I, I would say, you know, it's usually motivated by founders who have a lot of power, having a bigger piece of the pie, asking for it. Um, and, and that's usually more the reason for it than any other rationale. Um, and so in that case, I'm not, a, I'm not in favor of them. I think that's they're, they're, they seem to be just, um, you know, they, they seem to be over, over the top requests around just getting a bigger piece of the pie that doesn't necessarily benefit everybody. They're very concentrated uh, among the top. Well, in their defense, I will say, and and just for purposes of discussion, they say, well, if the stock reaches 150%, 300% where it is, right, then we'll get these grants. And then every other shareholder will benefit from having an enormous stock appreciation. I don't think, well, maybe Elon Musk was the only one who thought Tesla was going to reach the numbers it did. Uh, but I'm not sure many, uh, you know, Tesla shareholders are complaining too much about how the company is doing. No, they're 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 actually probably not complaining that much about how the company is doing. But are they complaining about how the how the company is getting there? Because <laughs> depending about um, Elon, that 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 we see every day in the newspaper. Yeah, and, right, exactly. <laughs> and if you're going to be a, um, a, a an executive leading a team. And it transitions from being about the founder to being about the company. Then you have a whole team of people um, who need to benefit from that. And the culture needs to be good. It needs to be positive um, in order to uh, optimize the, the potential of that organization. And it's not just about the individual anymore. And so my question is, do these moonshot systems acknowledge that? And, and, and my concern is they don't. Now, 
that's very different from a, what I'll call a top-up grant. And sometimes founders, you know, get lost in the shuffle. Everybody thinks the founder has plenty of, of equity. Um, when the equity grants are coming out for other executives, you, the, the organization needs to recruit. The founders can get left out. And at, before you go public, there might be a legitimate top-up grant to make sure that the relationships of one executive to another are appropriate and make sense. But that's different from what I would call the moonshot. Mm-hmm. Another very big trend that we're seeing in the public markets are the rise of SPACs, another vehicle that has existed for many years. But uh, suddenly, after the pandemic broke out, we are seeing a revolution. Uh, just in 2020, $83 billion uh, were raised by 248 SPACs. And this year, we're up to 388 SPACs that have raised $117 billion. From your perspective, what is going on at, from a compensation perspective? I know there's a lot of discussion on incentives from sponsors of these PACs and why people are raising them, but any red flags that you see from a governance perspective and from a compensation perspective with these new vehicles? So um, you have two companies involved in SPAC transactions. One is the SPAC, which is the Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation, and they um, are formed to raise public capital and then go find a target company mm-hmm. and then merge with that target company. So the second party is the, the merged target company. Um, you know, we've, we've seen criticism of some of the SPAC compensation levels. Um, I am not as familiar with that, but we consult very heavily with companies who are going public either via the traditional IPO route or the SPAC route. So they're either getting getting merged into a public SPAC or they on themselves are going, they by themselves are going public in the traditional way. And I would say, you know, the SPAC has gotten very, very popular because it's quicker and less expensive to go public that way. And people are the SEC in particular, they're they're really concerned about the costliness of being public. And they think it's putting a dampening effect on how many companies can go public. So I think the SPACs are, are serving a purpose there. Um, there. It's not as easy to do them as one might think. For example, the SEC just came in and said, um, the way you account for warrants has to be different than the way you've been accounting mm-hmm. for them. And that delayed a lot of um, merging by, you know, by three months, that kind of thing. So we, we do see some, some bumps in the road and some sorting out of these things. At the end of the day, it's very interesting how we advise on how people should get compensated whether they go public via a, merge, a merger with a SPAC or whether they go public during via a traditional IPO, right, uh, IPO process is the same. It's not as though one versus the other as the means to going public um, affects how you should compensate those people. You still have the same competitive markets. Mm-hmm. You still have the same pressures. You still have the same, um, you know, at these these companies, these target companies are participating in an industry. They still have goals and measures that they need to um, that they, they need to meet. And so uh, we're advising on all those things. And whether they went public one way or the other, um, it isn't really going to change the perspective on that. Well, I'll, I'll, I suppose we'll know more in, in two years after the period of the uh, D-SPAC, right, runs out. And, and all these companies that have hundreds of billions of dollars uh, looking for a merger are, you know, got a gun in the head and they got to make a merger. And I, 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 I suspect we're going to see a lot of bad actions 
in this regard. And, and I think that's why the SEC is taking a closer look at these. You know, another. No, no, I would just say I think sure. you're right. The, the bloom may come off the rose mm-hmm. if there's if there's too many of them. If there's too much capital chasing after few, too few targets, you may see a lot of those targets be overpriced. You know, the the, the shareholder then you know takes the short end of the stick, and uh, we could see a lot of fallout at that point. Yeah. Uh, another story that is uh, that is going the rounds in in corporate governance is the proxy fight that Exxon just had where a very small hedge fund, engine number one, uh, with a very small toehold uh, of, I think it was $20 million or $30 million, uh, effectively uh, was able to get three board members uh, nominated and elected in Exxon, which you know, is, is, is probably one of the biggest uh, corporations out there. And, and people are very nervous. Directors are very nervous. Uh, are, are, you know, th- this is a sub 1% shareholder. Uh, what do you make out of this? And do you think there's going to be a shift in terms of boards and activism again? And if so, in what way? So the whole ExxonMobil proxy fight is a watershed moment. And I actually heard uh, one of your other uh, podcast guest Donna Anderson talk a little bit mm-hmm. about this. Donna, by the way, and I, we go we go quite a bit back. We we worked in corporate governance circles for quite some time, and I have all kinds of respect for what she has to say. Um, but from my perspective, um, engine number one took note that Exxon had produced poor returns. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of hedge funds, a lot of activists do that. That's how, that's the point at which they get started. Um, what was so interesting about this is that engine number one felt as though just citing poor returns wasn't going to carry the day with the institutional investors. And so they put up um, an alternative slate of directors, um, argued for that, put a proposal together, and got the institutional investors on side, not by not through saying this company has substandard returns, but by saying this company, um, really hasn't uh, stepped up on, on the side of navigating away from fossil fuels and toward cleaner energy. And the large institutional investors, that institu- in, that resonated with them. Mm-hmm. And it was on that platform that they were able to get the changes they wanted, which was the displacement of board members with their choice in, in who should be on the board. Uh, and I feel just to your question about, OK, what what impact is that going to have? Number one is um, we're seeing a different kind of activism starting to crop up around stakeholder ESG, these kind of things. And one needs to pay attention to it. Um, but number two is I think boards have to be really ready for this, um, you know, and the whole stakeholder movement. And if it's not real, if it's lip service, it's perceived to be lip service, there will be activists in there. Um, asking you, making you walk the talk. And so for boards, they have to educate on stakeholder measures. I think they need to make it real. They have to have real oversight on these measures. They have to have real programs and strategies on stakeholders. They have to have uh, real real measurements, real incentives, real disclosures, and undertake real engagement initiatives with investors to talk about it. And if they don't, they are vulnerable. Yeah, and I feel this is really the core of the issue is when we talk about ESG, what does it really mean, right? Like 
Uh, you know, may, maybe you heard one of my podcasts with Joe Grunfest, but he always calls ESG extremely subjective guessing, right? So you can put a lot of things into ESG and and certainly environmental issues are at the forefront of the institutional investors, but then we can go into social matters and that's, you know, more complicated, right? Uh, diversity or, you know, other issues that uh, are in the workplace, uh, and, and for example, we've seen some companies take a different uh, approach. For example, Coinbase, the CEO said, hey, we don't want to talk about all these issues in the workplace, and therefore we are mission-driven. And, and it's really interesting to look at this. Uh, Shopify is another company. The CEO came out with a letter saying, hey, we're not a family. We're a company, and we, are, we need to be driven like a sports team. We need the best people in, and it's not like a family in here, which I thought was a very good letter in, in, in that respect. So let me ask you in this direction, a lot of talk has been uh, over human capital. And maybe do you have an opinion on the shift towards human capital? And this, again, has been driven by institutional investors that say, hey, companies have to uh, consider this and, and regulators are taking a bigger look into disclosures of human capital. What do you think about this, this new area? Yeah, so I think um, human capital and the spotlight on it, it it's, it's whose time has come. And if you think about our transition quite a while ago from an industrial economy to more of a service economy, it is much more about the people than it's ever been before. And, you know, what's the, you still need a return. What's the return on investment for, for, on the people investment? And um, that means you have to manage the people assets really, really well. And investors now want to know about that because it's such an important part of the value equation for them. Um, so we've, we've just seen, um, we finally have seen the SEC catch up a little bit. We've seen round one of the human capital management disclosures that are required in the 10K. And, and it's very principles-based. Um, you know, the, the SEC said, you know, to the extent that you think investors um, can benefit and get insight into the company by knowing about your human capital practices, uh, please disclose those, is essentially what it was. It used to be you just had to disclose the number of employees, but now you can disclose much more. And uh, this year, we were looking kind of very, very, very carefully at what was disclosed, and it, and it varied very widely. You had some uh, organizations out there with a 10-word disclosure. You had others with a 2,000-word disclosure um, around human capital practices. Uh, some were quantitative, but most were qualitative. Uh, and so companies are, are trying to figure it out. Here's where I think this is going to head, though. I think investors are saying, well, that was nice. We, we like that. We're learning more about the company. It's an important part of what we need to know to judge whether your company is sustainable and built on Kind of rock solid values and and uh, you know ways of getting things done, or if it's you know smoke and mirrors, and so they like that. What they want though is more quantification. They want more standardization of what's going to be reported on, so that they can compare one company to the next, and and just fuller disclosure. And so, I, I was talking with one of the large pension funds, and I said, well, what is it out there that you are? specifically looking for. And uh, she said, there's four areas. One is number of employees, which already needs to be imported, reported. The second is diversity. Mm -hmm. You want to know specifically about the diversity efforts and results. The third is the profile of the workforce, you know, part-time, full-time, overseas, um, cost, et cetera. And the fourth is the retention of that workforce. Are you holding on to the people you need to hold on to bring this company forward? And so I thought that was very interesting. We're now starting to see that specificity coming to play. 
That's great. All right. I know we could be going on and on on governance, but let me switch gears into some rapid fire questions. What are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? So this one is easier than you might expect because I actually wrote a book. Okay. Called, called <laughs> you Fair can't Play. use your own book as your favorite book. <laughs> I well, I want to say it most. It, it was the book that most deeply influenced my life. It's called Fair Pay, Fair Play: Aligning Executive uh, Performance and Pay, and it consumed my life for a good year and a half. And okay. if you recall, early in the discussion, we said, you know, <laughs> I I had the the fortune or misfortune of starting uh, Farron Advisors um, in 2007, right before the recession. And I really needed to think about what we were doing and, uh, and, and do things. Well, that gave me room to, to write the book, you know? Mm. And so that's what we did. And I, um, it was all consuming uh, for quite some time, interviewed a lot of people to try to make it real and, and uh, very practical. Uh, but at the end of the day, took a lot of effort to put together. And I, I recall a trip from uh, Duke University, where I was on the board, to um, uh, to Asheville, North Carolina, where we were spending a long weekend with friends. And I was in the I, my husband was driving, and I was in the back seat, literally writing a chapter of the book <laughs> for five hours on the way to the destination. And I thought, this is you just you just have to do what you have to do. But then one that's not mine is Aesop's Fables, and uh, my parents used to read that to me as a kid, and. The lessons are just terrific and they are lasting. We can always carry those lessons with us. There's one about a, a crow who's preening and she's got a she's got a worm or something in her mouth. And um, there's there's uh, somebody on the, I think it was another bird on the ground and said, boy, you know, and the bird wanted the worm and said, if, 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 if your voice was only as beautiful as your feathers and the crow crowed, dropped the worm and the vanity <laughs> was the was the thing that got the mm -hmm. crow so and and also got the crow on the ground the cleverness uh the worm so we see things like that that just stick with you for life so i uh, when is your second book coming out so i wanted to write a book on the the 360 degree um stakeholder 360 mm -hmm. degree stakeholders and because it's 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 really a very broad look at what needs to happen and i haven't had the time to write it that's my yeah. problem Okay. Love to find a ghostwriter if there's anybody out there who's <laughs> okay. interested. That's that's uh, really interesting. Who are your mentors, and what did you learn from them? So, um, mentorship is really interesting because I have a view that you can literally learn from everybody. I'm learning from our interview right now, and I can literally learn from everyone. And so, I would say, you know, most of the people that I have interfaced with over my career have been mentors to me and uh, and I and I'm always learning. Um, I've got one client in particular I thought about. Uh, she was a client in the old days when executives hired executive compensation consultants and mm -hmm. now she's a client in the new world where directors, she's a director, uh, hire executive compensation consultants. And you know I'm I, I learned from watching her, I learned from listening to her. Sometimes she gives me direct feedback, which is always very helpful and this is the kind of um, listening and, um, you know, absorption, I think, that, that needs to happen. So that's you, where I get it. You just made me think, and, and you know, you were based in, in San Francisco. What made you move to L.A.? And, and how is the L.A. Uh, business context these days? 
So um, yes, I I moved um, because the founder because the money um, who was finance the financier for for Ferriant was in Los Angeles. We decided mm-hmm. to set up here, and um, I, I love warm weather after you know growing up in Indiana, um, and so this worked out well for me. But I I really like a big concentrated city as well, mm-hmm. and so uh, 10, 11 years ago actually I decided to split my time between New York and Los Angeles. So it's a quarter on, a quarter off in each location, base of operation, and I get my dose of big city commercial wow. action and um, something that's by the beach. Still very, still very active, but um, just just a different a different uh, milieu. Within so, so you moved to LA in two thousand seven when you started uh, Ferient. No, I moved in twenty ten actually. So okay. eleven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Moved, okay. Well, moved to New York in in twenty in. Uh, now, when I started, um, when I was in LA, I actually moved in um, in 1985 when I started SCA Consulting. Got it. We ended up selling to Mercer, so that that's when I moved to Los Angeles. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. I thought it was more. New, New York was 2010. Okay. And are there any quotes that you think of often, or you live your life by? So it's interesting. I guess. I guess my favorite sayings have to do with luck. Although there's a lot of great quotes out there, but my father-in-law, who is a very successful uh, business person in LA, used to say, um, luck is where you look for it. And mm-hmm. he had a lot of luck because he looked for it. <laughs> and so uh, I try to emulate that. And I feel very lucky myself, which is good. Which um, is a great sign, obviously. Yes. Yes, exactly. So I would say that's a, that's a good one to keep in mind. Okay. Do you have an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? So... I, the probably the most absurd thing I love is frozen yogurt. I just okay. I absolutely love it. I absolutely crave it. And um, I'm I swear when I go to New York, the frozen yogurt place across the street from us, uh, their market share goes up when I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> and opposite when I come to Los Angeles, so it's frozen yogurt. Okay, frozen yogurt. And which living person do you most admire? So there's a there's a few of them. They're kind of trendsetters. One is Misty Copeland. Mm who is um, at the American Ballet Theater. She's a principal dancer, um, very famous, but she, she's a she's one of the first black um, dancers, principal dancers, and overcame a lot of diversity in her upbringing. But because of, you know, really hard work and a lot of perseverance, she became best in class. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. And as we think about uh, purveying our craft and uh, doing our work, thinking about, um, the art of it and what can be achieved, I think is really important. Wow. Well, this is the second time that somebody picks her. Uh, Aisha Mastagni from Calsters also picked her as her most admired person, living person. Robin, it has been great to talk to you. Uh, I'm really happy that we got to do this. I feel like there's a lot more that we should talk about in terms of governance and what's going on with executive compensation. But thank you very much for your time. And hopefully uh, we'll meet soon when you come up to San Francisco or or if I'm down in LA or New York. Excellent. Evan, thank you so much. It It was great to be with you. All right. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.